Have you dreamed of bigger things for your life? Then you are in the right place. Each week, you will be given tips on how to change your inner dialogue, conquer your goals, and ways to step into a higher version of yourself. I'm your host, Lauren Kubat. I'm a motivational speaker who hosts personal development events. I'm a sought-after fitness instructor, a wife, and a mom of two young boys. I'm obsessed with all things personal development, and I believe anyone can achieve the life they want. Let the Become Your Vision podcast be the inspiration you need to step into greater things. Now let's go. Kudos to you for tuning in because sleep is a topic that is so important, but it's often overlooked and we emphasize exercise and nutrition, but we don't really emphasize sleep. There's been a lot more research in the last couple of years and people are starting to really think about the quality of their sleep. But this episode is really, really insightful. And we talk about so many things. So in the in the beginning of the episode, we talk about the benefits of sleep, um, the effects of not getting enough sleep. We talk about the stages of sleep, which is really interesting. But the latter half of the episode, we talk about um, the effects that alcohol has on our sleep, melatonin, CBD, caffeine. We talk about the tips that you can... Uh, apply to your life so you're getting better quality sleep. Now, there are so many other things I wanted to ask now that I'm actually recording this intro. I'm like, I wanted to ask her about the Aura Ring. Um, I know there are some people that rave about the Aura Ring. I don't have the website here, but I believe it's O-U-R-A. It's something I am considering getting because I just like to know the type of sleep I'm getting. And it really goes into the number of stages that you're having, sleep cycles, the quality of sleep, uh, the type of workout you should do that day, what type of um, mood you're, um, I guess, guest to have for that day. Um, Again, I don't have an aura ring, but that was something I wanted to touch on. But I'm speaking out loud to you now, if that is something that interests you, I definitely... um, would recommend looking that up. I want to also note that when you listen to this episode, I don't want you to be overwhelmed. Oftentimes we listen to an educational podcast or book or TV episode and we want to completely revamp our life. My point for you is to take what you can from this episode and make small changes. How can you be 1% better than you were yesterday? Can you take one tip from this week's episode and apply it to your life? And then next week, take a different tip and apply it to your life. It is supposed to be conducive to your lifestyle and not overwhelming. And I also want to say that if you are a new mom, oh my gosh, My heart goes out to you um, because having a newborn, I know, is very, very stressful. It impacts your sleep quality. So I mentioned this in the episode and I will say it again. This too shall pass. Don't 
overthink it and do the best you best you can and there are tips in this episode that you can apply maybe you're scrolling social media before bed and you don't need to be doing that so there are tips in this episode that you can apply to your life even though you might be woken up in the middle of the night with a with a child or maybe it's a partner snoring or a dog whatever that is and the last thing I want to mention is Dr. Sarah gave me a website that I will include in the show notes. At the latter part of the episode, we talk a bit about insomnia. She gave me this website. It is behavioralsleep.org. And I will leave that in the show notes where you can actually go to this website and look at different providers in your area if you're suffering from insomnia. Oh, And I said that was my last thing. Actually, this is my last thing. I have created a high fiber cereal called Moosely. If you've listened to this episode before, you've probably heard all about my development of Moosely, how it has helped me with my digestion, how it's helped me stay full. I eat it after my workout and it helps me stay full for hours. I am doing a giveaway. So if you share this episode For now, it's Wednesday until Sunday, the Sunday after 4th of July, you will be entered into a drawing to win a packet of Moosely to try. Okay, that was it. I know that was a lot. You're going to get so much out of this episode. Enjoy. Hey guys, from the intro, you can tell that I'm super excited to be talking about sleep today doctor do you go by dr sarah sleep or just on instagram yeah, dr sarah or just sarah is fine <laughs> <laughs> i love it on social media or dr dr sarah sleep and i think it's that's so fun yes yes all things sleep all things sleep okay so let's talk first of all about i feel like the benefits of sleep because a lot of sleep, I guess, knowledge or education is overlooked. We talk about exercise and we talk about nutrition, but we don't talk about the importance of sleep. So what does sleep do for us? Um, This could be a entire uh, episode on just the benefits of sleep, but (laughs) I would say you're absolutely right about that. You know, there's so much emphasis on what we eat and working out, but sleep, which is one of the pillars of health. And in my opinion, it can be the most important. It really does affect these other areas of health and lifestyle. Like in order to be able to get through a workout and sustain your energy, you have to have had a good night of quality sleep. And also the way that you sleep affects the type of food choices that you make the next day. So I genuinely feel, and of course I'm biased here, but I feel like sleep we need to start with sleep. Like sleep is our foundation of health. And once we have quality sleep, then we're able to really focus on these other areas of health that also impact our overall wellness. Mm -hmm. So having good sleep affects your, your diet, your nutrition, and it also of course affects your physical activity levels. And of course there are a number of different things involved with health overall, but Mm -hmm. there isn't as much emphasis on sleep 
as there you know, is such an emphasis on diet and exercise. And I think that the, the culture is changing. There's been a shift. I think more people are talking about the benefits of sleep, mm-hmm. but we still have a long way to go. We still have a very long way to go. And so I will say a lot of the benefits that we know about sleep um, have really only been discovered maybe in the last 20, 30 years. I mean, it's a relatively new science. We're still uncovering a lot. We still don't know a lot of things, but I'd say the, one of the biggest benefits of good quality sleep is mood. It's mm. a mood. It's directly linked to, you know, how we feel during the day, but also just our general, fatigue level, which can impact mood, you know, if you're just feeling kind of out of it and sluggish that, you know, affects how you feel. But I think that's one of the biggest things. So not having good quality sleep directly affects how you feel and specifically whether or not you're going to be more irritable or cranky the next day. So I think mood is often the first thing to go when you're not getting good quality sleep. So that's, to me, one of the biggest benefits is having good quality sleep on a regular basis Mm -hmm. allows you to have good mood on a regular basis. Right. That's a very, I would say, complex relationship. There's still a lot that we don't know about that relationship either. But what we do know is that, you know, one influences the other and vice versa. So Mm-hmm. Making sure that you really do prioritize your sleep health to me is also prioritizing your mental health. So I'd say that's one of the biggest benefits. The other, I would say more well-known benefits are going to be for overall long-term health. You know, there's so much info out there now that kind of, as I like to say, puts a lot of fear in people or scare people in terms of like, if you don't get eight hours of sleep, you're going to be at risk for these long-term health problems or chronic health issues. And yes, there is some truth to that, but, you know, sleep is much more complex than if you don't get enough sleep, this is going to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. So of course, some of the more well-known benefits are really making sure that your cognitive health is where it should be. So specifically like your ability to make good decisions, organize, plan, reason, like all the cognitive abilities that specifically affect the frontal lobe or the prefrontal cortex of our brain. Mm -hmm. If you're not getting good quality sleep, that can distort the way that you make day-to-day decisions or make day-to-day judgment calls. And so I would say that's one of the other big benefits is specifically on, you know, your mental alertness and how much clarity you have during the day. I mean, oftentimes people who don't have great sleep will describe kind of being in a brain fog state mm-hmm. kind of being out of it. And so quality sleep directly affects cognitive health, brain health as well. Totally. And yeah. And then I would say the, the other big benefit that I think is more well studied is, um, you know, just physical health, the, the relationship between getting good quality sleep and, you know, really what I like to consider as preventing a lot of potential physical ailments from developing later on in life. So I think the most well-studied are going to be, you know, cardiovascular um, health issues, heart attack, stroke, and then also metabolic issues like diabetes or even pre-diabetes or just having like insulin resistance and things of that nature. So sleep and getting good quality sleep is directly linked to 
physical health long-term, cognitive health right. long-term, health long-term. Yeah. Those are the three biggest. And those are, those are huge, huge. You know, it, it, I think everyone listening has had a poor night's sleep or maybe you're a new mom and, mm-hmm. or you're, you know, even if you're, you know, your kids are a little bit older and they're waking you up or the dog, whatever, somebody's snoring, yeah. your partner snoring, whatever it is. And you have a terrible night's sleep. You are a raging, maybe bitch, <laughs> bitch <laughs> the next day, you know? So, or at least I am, if I don't get good sleep. So, do you know, has there been a lot of study done because there's a lot of people that listen to this episode that are really into, um, you know, exercising and strength training and, um, exercise is a big part of their life. Can the lack of sleep affect weight loss or, and, or muscle building? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And I think we do have quite a bit of data that directly shows the lack of sleep can really determine how well you build muscle mass or, you know, if you're on a journey to weight loss, that can certainly affect the hormones involved with being able to get to your desired goal. And I would say same for, for weight gain as well, but it's a little bit of a different pathway, but absolutely. I would say overall for most people who are say going through a fitness journey or a weight loss journey, sleep is the missing piece, the missing Mm. piece of the puzzle where, you know, they're focusing so much on the diet and the workouts, but they're not really prioritizing that sleep piece when, you know, that is something that if it were prioritized on a more regular basis, you would probably see more gains in these Mm. other areas. You'd be able to make better food choices. You'd be able to see those gains, you know, as far as working out and in the gym and, so, so absolutely there, there's a lot of data. And I think in this area as well, we're still just scratching the surface, right. but you know, that there's a direct link from sleep into these other areas of, of physical health. Cause you need that sleep for recovery time. And then if you're not getting enough sleep, I assume your stress hormones go up like cortisol and that could lead to rate weight retention. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a great point. So if Mm. you aren't getting enough sleep and all, and on the other side of this, if you maybe are getting enough sleep, but it's not good quality sleep Mm. that can also alter the hormones that are specifically involved with, with metabolism and cortisol being one of those. Absolutely. So it can kind of throw off the way that your cortisol fluctuates Mm. where, you know, as an example, um, for all of us, when we wake up in the morning, our cortisol is a little bit higher. That's what wakes us up and allows our body to kind of come out of sleep. But if you say didn't get a great night of sleep, there's a spike in cortisol. So it could be a lot higher than it usually is. And you're starting the day off with this elevated level of stress hormone circling throughout your body. And you know, then you're putting yourself through a workout and that's mm. can also peak cortisol as well. So it completely throws off the natural and then you're adding caffeine to it. <laughs> it's like, we're all messed up. Yes. So it's just like fueling, you know, that, that spike in cortisol and it's not yeah, allowing yeah. your body its natural flow. It's not allowing your body to do its natural fluctuation. Mm. So let's get into the very specifics of how we can get better quality sleep. Let's first start with how, what's the golden number of hours 
most adults, I would say every, like if we could put that us into an average, that the average um, adult needs to function um, properly. I love this question because there's so much emphasis out there on getting eight hours, Mm. but eight is not a magic number. And I like to think about sleep as a shoe size. One size does not fit all. So if we were to group everybody into say an average category, majority of adults will fall into a seven to nine hour range. And that's where the magic number eight comes from. This that. But when we really look at the data and look at, you know, ages across the lifespan, there's actually a really wide range of sleep need that isn't talked about, I would say, especially in the media. There's so much emphasis on this eight hours or seven to nine hour range, which yes, the majority of folks do fall in there. But what we've actually discovered is there could actually be folks who fall under what we consider now a short sleep category and then a long sleep category. So anywhere from say only needing four to five hours of sleep versus 10 or 11 hours of sleep. So you can kind of think of it, yeah, as like a a bell curve. So -hmm. you have people who are going to be more of the minorities at each end of that curve. And then the majority of people fall in that middle of the curve. So really wide range. And it really differs from person to person. So Mm. what about teens and adults or teens and adults, teens and uh, like adolescent? So that's also going to vary by age, Okay. but generally adolescents and teens are going to need more sleep in general because they're growing. And actually one of the benefits of deep sleep. So when we're in a a deep restorative stage of sleep, our growth hormone is released. And that is one of the reasons why teens and adolescents need more sleep in general. They need to be getting more of that deep restorative sleep so that that can fuel growth and development. So I'd say usually for, for, teens and adolescents, it's, it's longer. So usually a range between like 10 to 14 hours, just depending. Wow. Wow. Um, okay. And I think this is a perfect segue. Let's talk about the, um, the sleep cycles or stages of sleep, what happens in each let's start there. And then we go, we'll go into like how many cycles we should be getting. Yeah. Yeah. So As far as the different stages of sleep, there are three stages of non-REM. So they're called NREM and we have NREM one, two, and three. Tell us what REM means. So REM is rapid eye movement sleep and REM sleep is considered its own stage of sleep. This is usually where we dream and a lot happens during REM sleep. It's also a very restorative part of our night, Uh, but typically while dreams do occur in REM, they can also happen in some of the other stages of sleep, although less common, but we could really dream in any stage. REM has been most well-studied when it comes to dream sleep. So we know that most of our dreaming does take place during REM. Um, So we have REM, and then we have those three stages of non-REM or NREM sleep. And when we first fall asleep, we cycle through the stages in order. So I should say stage one is very light sleep. Stage two is still light sleep, but it gets a little bit deeper. And then stage three is what we consider our deep sleep or sometimes referred to as slow wave sleep. 
So the way that we tell the difference in our sleep cycles is by the change in brain waves, which is usually, well, the only way to really study that is if we were to hook you up with brain electrodes and study that in a, in a lab, usually for, for sleep studies, but there's this actual change that happens. So stage one sleep, very light, very small waves. Stage two gets a little bit slower in terms of those waves, but there's actually what we call um, K spindles that happen during stage two, which is very specific to that stage. And then K spindles, what does that mean? It's just a change in brain waves that happen designates that specific stage of sleep. Okay. And then stage three is the REM you said? Stage three is going to be deep sleep or Mm. slow wave sleep. So that's when our brain waves are very slow and they um, aren't as frequent. So there's this differentiation between our brain waves in each of these stages and then REM, which is kind of its own category. So when we first fall asleep, we start off in stage one. So very light sleep, we kind of drift off, but we actually cycle through the stages in order. So we start off stage one, go to stage two, down to stage three within the first hour or so, give or take. And then we kind of cycle back up and we cycle back down. And then what's interesting is after about hour three or four of our night, that's it for deep sleep. Mm. So the second half of the night then is comprised of lighter sleep. And that's REM. That's when REM kind of takes over and we start the process of REM. Now, this is, of course, it varies from person to person, but this is in general what a typical night of sleep might look like for most adults. So first part of the night is generally comprised of deep sleep. And then after you're done with your deep sleep needs for the night and you transition to the second half of the night, that's where REM sleep usually takes place. So Mm -hmm. I would say there's often really big misperception about deep sleep and that, you know, a lot of people think we need eight hours of deep sleep in order to wake up feeling rested. But as adults, we actually don't need as much deep sleep as I think most people think we only need about three or so hours, maybe two hours, give or take, depending on, on your age. Interesting. So what is there a, okay. So would that be the most important part of your sleep stage would be deep three when you're, I guess you have the slow waves. Well, you know, I, I actually believe that we need all stages. Okay. To feel well rested. I know that there is a lot of emphasis on got to get deep sleep. You got to get REM But in order to feel well well rested, you have to allow your body and your brain specifically to be able to go through the cycle as your your brain is intended to do. And so not having that flow and that rhythm that needs to occur is usually what leads to not feeling well rested. But I will say deep sleep, so that slow wave sleep and REM sleep, those are the two stages that are the more restorative. So those are the ones that really want to make sure you give yourself opportunity to get, but this isn't something that any of us really have much control over. So Mm -hmm. ensuring that you have enough opportunity to sleep that usually allows your brain to do what it needs to do. Yeah. I like that you mentioned that too. It's like all parts are important. It's like, we kind of try to fit everything in a box, but it, 
you know, I teach group fitness and we can think of sleep in terms of you could compare it to fitness where like, you're not going to benefit if you're only doing cardio or you're only doing strength training. You need to be really well-versed and make sure you're stretching and um, building those muscles, but also working your heart and um, all of that. So I think that's really, really important. Now, is there a golden sleep where you should be going to sleep and you should be waking up? Another question I love because especially uh, more recently, there's been a lot of emphasis on, you know, making sure that you go to bed before or go to bed by 10 PM. And here's what I have to say to that. We all have our own unique circadian rhythm. Mm. So there is not a golden rule in terms of when you should be going to bed and when you should be waking up. It really is going to vary based on your unique chronotype, which is essentially your specific circadian rhythm, what your body clock wants you to be doing. So that can look like, you know, I would say for someone who has what we would consider a typical chronotype, that's like a classic 10 to six schedule or 11 to seven, where you naturally feel sleepy around 10 or 11, and then you naturally wake up around six or seven. There are some people who have an earlier body clock where they feel sleepy around eight or nine, and that's when their body wants them to sleep. And then they might wake up four or 5 a.m. And, you know, they're ready to start the day that early. They're true morning larks. And then we have folks who are those who don't get sleepy until much later into the night, like two, three, 4 a.m. And then mm. they'll sleep in into the uh, later morning, early afternoon, and that feels better for them. So as I like to encourage everyone that I work with, like it's so important for you to know your specific chronotype, because if you can sleep in that window, so your unique circadian rhythm window, you're going to get your best quality sleep. That's where everything is going to be aligned. So it's kind of like, you know, in the same way with fitness, like it, for most people, they know, like if, if they can sustain a workout in the morning, afternoon or evening. And so you want to, you know, that's an, another thing or another reason why it's so important to know, because if you're a night owl, you're not waking up at 5am to work out, mm -hmm. you function better working out in the afternoon or evening. So it really is not only about kind of figuring out what, how do we figure that out? Our chromotype. Great question. So I'd say the best way to do this, and this isn't always possible, but would be actually free sleep for a couple weeks where you didn't have to set an alarm. You didn't have to wake up for anything. So I know that that can be very much easier said than done with all of our right. responsibilities, but just to kind of see where you naturally end up feeling sleepy. And then you naturally end up waking up in the morning. And I'd say for a lot of people, you kind of already have a sense mm -hmm. of where you feel sleepy, you know, come bedtime. And then when you're naturally waking up, you have a sense of that because your, your body often does want you to be sleeping in that window or as close to that window as you can, but there really isn't a, a, a test or anything. I mean, there are some, um, saliva samples and things that can be done in a research setting, but they really aren't in the mainstream where you can like take a test and it will tell you what you have. It's more about like, just kind of tuning in to what actually would feel 
natural for you. Like when your body's actually giving you the sign to fall asleep and wake up, that's usually close to what your, your body actually wants for you. Yeah. Well, I want to also talk about what inhibits our sleep because sometimes we're not, we don't allow ourselves to, or our body to naturally give ourselves cues because we're uh, watching TV or we're scrolling on social media. So what are some things that inhibit our sleeps that are like our sleep cycle, um, our falling asleep time that we can easy things that we can, uh, improve on that anybody can. Yeah. Great question. So I would say one, you just brought up, you know, screen use using electronics before bed, you know, I think that there, there will, there is a lot of research and, and, uh, data these days that tells us, you know, blue light can be, detrimental to sleep, but I actually believe it's, it's more about what you're doing on Mm. this. It's more about what you're watching, what you're reading, what you're consuming than it is say the light. Although yes, the light can be alerting for some people, what you're doing can either influence whether you're going to continue to engage or, you know, actually say, all right, I, you know, I have a hard kind of stopping point. I'm going to cut this off at this time. And then transition to bed and do something else. So screen use, I would say that's one of the things where it can go both ways. I mean, some people do prefer to use a screen to read and that allows them to wind down before bed, but it's what you're reading that makes a difference in terms of being able to say, okay, I'm going to read, you know, 15 minutes and that's, what's going to allow me to fall asleep versus something that is so interesting that you can't put the book down. You're more Mm. likely to up in that case. And then that gets in the way of your opportunity to sleep. So it really does does depend on the person there, but I'd say that's one place to start just to kind of check in like what your screen use is before bed. And is it something that is helping you transition to sleep in a relaxing way? Or is it something that is getting in the way of you being able to prioritize your sleep? Mm. If you are listening to this episode, I know that you live a very busy life and maybe you struggle with healthy eating. I enjoy nutritious foods, but I don't want to spend hours in the kitchen. So I have created something called Moosely. Now, Moosely has oats, it has almonds, chia seed, flax seed, hemp seed, coconut, cacao, and cinnamon. I think I got it all. And it's high in fiber, low in sugar, only three grams of sugar, and nine grams of protein, 10 grams of fiber. And it is keeping me full after my workouts. I don't eat breakfast. I have this after my workout. And I'm not hungry until late afternoon or dinner. And I... I'm not the only one who has been loving Moosely. I have a woman, she's pregnant, and she was eating Chipotle burritos every single day because everything else was making her nauseous until she tried Moosely. If you are interested in this, all you have to do is go to mymoosely.com. That's mymoosely.com. I'll leave all the information in the show notes. It's affordable. It has five servings. It will make your life so much easier because all you have to do is pour it into a bowl, add a little bit of milk, and you're good to go. Mymoosely.com. With the screen time and the TV, is that different because it's a different light? 
So I'd say the, the short answer to that would be no. So any screen is going to emit this blue white light okay. and in our brains, you know, because technology is fairly recent, you know, our brains don't really know the difference between the blue white on a screen versus blue light from the sun. Mm. So sometimes, you know, if you're looking at a screen, especially for folks who are in bed, just scrolling on their phone with the lights off, you know, your brain might be thinking, oh, well, I'm getting that light. It, it might, maybe the sun's out. You're giving your brain kind of these um, opposite cues for, for sleep when you really want it to think, okay, it's time to, to wind down. So generally, and nowadays some of the screens are getting more sophisticated. So they do have like software and things built in where you can dim the light, you can change the color to a more orange color, which is definitely, you know, if you have those, the ability to do that, I would say use them. But generally a screen is going to emit that blue white light. So okay, um, any screen use, you know, usually does have that effect in terms of just communicating a different response for your brain when it comes to sleep. Right. Because if you go back to, I've listened to podcasts on this and the research that's been done on sleep, going back to our caveman days, it's like, okay, the light, the sun came up and told us, Hey, it's time to wake up. And then, you know, it went down in a certain time. We got tired. That's in, in the same goes in the winter time. You know, when the sun sets, it's like, Oh, we naturally uh, get more tired. And then in the summer when it's, you know, still light out, we're like, Oh, I can still, you know, hang out and do things. We don't get as tired as quick, but, um, just like a little tip, I don't know if it helps, but for me, I try not to look, I don't know when I'm looking at my phone, I feel like I'm more alert when I'm zoning off with TV. I feel like I can relax more. And I guess it goes back to when I was brought up, I've always fallen asleep with a TV. I just have, can I fall asleep without a TV? Sure. But, um, I do like some background noise. Now, if I'm scrolling my phone, I feel like that takes more effort. You know, you have to use your finger, mm -hmm. there's movement, you have to read or whatever. You can't really zone out. Um, that inhibits my sleep. So what I also, so I try to make it a half an hour or maybe even an hour before I go to bed. I don't have a hard time falling asleep, but also I do change the brightness on my phone. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's helped me. Um, and then you were talking about changing like the color on my Kindle. If I choose to read before I go to bed, um, you can change it to, um, like an orangish color and you can automatically set these in your apps to happen at a certain time. So like my phone gets a little bit darker. I think I set it for like seven o'clock. So I'm glad you um, mentioned that because there are these features that maybe for you, maybe it is the light and it, going back to the intention and the content you are reading or, um, you know, watching, I think definitely affects your sleep. And, um, like if you read something scary, right. Or you're watching a murder show and I'm like one of those sick people that I will watch Dateline and that's what I fall, <laughs> fall asleep to. I'm like people dying. I can fall asleep to it. It depends on what type of murder it is, but you know what sure. I mean? It's like, if you're watching, like, I don't know, Halloween or something and you're freaked out and there's a lot of screaming or whatever, loud noises on the TV or whatever it is, you're going to have a harder time falling asleep because of, um, the intention of whatever content you are, um, listening to watching, reading, whatever that is. 
Yeah, that's such a great point. And along those same lines, it really does depend on what you prefer in terms of what's going to do the trick Mm. to get you to be able to wind down. So there are so many folks that I talk to where it feel the same way where, you know, watching TV is something that is more comforting and soothing. And it's something that you've just done for years that really helps you transition to sleep. And of course, all the general sleep advice out there is going to tell you, you know, don't watch TV in bed or don't use the screen, but it really does depend on what's going to help you wind down and get to the point where you can fall asleep. And for that reason, I say like, whatever works for you, do that. So whatever. Do you think the same same goes for teens? Because I, you know, there's a lot of teens that sleep with their phone by their bed and, you know, they're on social media and stuff and they're not getting the quality sleep and they don't really have the um, brain capacity to really tune into their body. Have there, has there been studies with that? Yeah. You know, I would say I would definitely approach teens and adolescents a little bit differently Mm. because yeah, I do think that being on social media and having, you know, all of the different options that we have these days for a developing brain is definitely going to impact their ability to fall asleep and the quality of their sleep. I'd say much differently than adults who have already developed, you know, their brain capacity. So yeah, I would say, you know, in that case, it may also depend on the teen or adolescent's chronotype, their circadian rhythm, but if they tend to be night owls, especially, I would say then, yeah, you'd probably would want to limit that screen time, have a hard cutoff point mm. where you know, still allowing them the opportunity to engage and catch up. But, you know, maybe for example, 30 minutes before bed transition mm. to doing something that's not screen related so that it creates the habit of doing something else that's not screens based that will teach their brain that they can fall asleep doing something different. Mm, Great advice. What are some simple tips to get better quality sleep? So there are many really great tips out there, but I would say going back to actually what you mentioned, light is the most powerful circadian regulator. So light is one of the best ways that we can regulate our circadian rhythms and sleep. Our sleep wake cycle is one of the biggest circadian rhythms that we have a ton. And so light is actually the first thing that I usually recommend, like how much light exposure are you really getting during the day? Because that's going to be a very powerful way to be able to help improve the quality of your sleep and not Not only that, but just keep your sleep schedule on a regular, consistent pattern. So increasing the amount of light exposure that you get during the day, one of the best things that you can do. And specifically morning light has been shown to be the most powerful from a sleep perspective. So before 10 a.m., 10 or 11, uh, you know, give or take, but that light, especially like sunrise up until then is really important for regulating all of the hormones involved with the process of sleep and also with you know our eating patterns and our rest activity patterns. So I would say start with increasing morning light exposure. Of course, everybody is a little bit different in terms of their skin and their health. So I always say, of course, ask your doctor first in terms of exposure, but generally 15 to 20 minutes of direct sunlight within the hour after you wake up is going to be ideal. Interest. Does driving in the car count? 
It does. However, there is a lot of light that still gets blocked through windows and screens. So while it's certainly better than nothing, you're still not going to get the same effect as you would if you were standing outside getting that direct sun. Or getting going on a walk or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But so I this- say it's easily as a walk outside. Okay. Okay. But in this, like we live in such a busy times, like I know there are listeners like, when am I going to walk? But like, like you said, you know, something is better than nothing. So if it's a drive in the car, that is definitely going to, um, it's going to benefit you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say any other time throughout the day, like even if it's after or during your lunch break, like Mm. outside for two minutes, if that's all you have, just to communicate to your brain, like it's still, you know, afternoon and that helps tell your brain what your body should be doing when it comes to regulating the process of sleep. And, you know, also I'll say what I usually recommend for folks in the morning is like, take your coffee outside Mm -hmm. or, you know, take whatever you to eat. If it's reading your phone, like take it outside and do that. So if it's, you know, five minutes is all you have, you're at least getting some of that direct light and, you know, communicating to your brain that you, you, you're um, wanting to regulate all of the hormones involved with your sleep. Aside from light, what are some other things that we can do to boost our quality of sleep? Yeah. So the, the other, what I like to call circadian regulators are going to be increasing your overall level of physical activity. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something strenuous. It could just be like adding more walking to your day or doing gentle stretches or something more low impact like yoga or Pilates, but increasing your level of activity is also one of the best ways to improve the quality of your sleep. And interestingly enough, another kind of increase in activity level, but something that we don't often think about is increasing our social time. So really connecting with people who are um, positive and who, you know, are quality folks that you, you know, really like to be around. So whether that is family, friends, coworkers, et cetera, really connecting with people and, you know, who you feel have a sense of community that has also been shown to be helpful at improving the quality of our sleep. So it really, does, I've never heard that one before. Yeah. And, and I would say it's one that's often overlooked when, you know, we, we think about the different factors that are involved with helping our sleep. I think physical activity is one of the more well-known ones. And then, you know, light, as I mentioned, but any increase in activity, whether that is physical or social, that social component also really does matter. And I think it it goes back to, you know, having quality relationships and having a sense of connectedness or community also helps to improve your mood or keep your mood stable. You know, if you're around people who are also uplifting and positive, that can certainly have an overall uh, benefit to your mood during the day. And then in turn, because you have better mood, your sleep tends to be better quality. I know there's moms out there that fight with their kids during bedtime. (laughs) It can set you into a rage. And I guess the best thing I can say to you is we've all been through that and it's temporary and this time too shall pass. I remember when my boys were infants, they're three and five now, and you know, we still have some bedtime struggle, um, but it does get better. Um, they do learn 
to sleep, but it can, it can be challenging. So I know there are some parents that are like social time and <laughs> like you think about, well, I see my family and that's my, that's my social time. Going yeah. back to what you said about exercise, do you feel like there's a, like if you work out in the evening that in, that can impact your quality of sleep? What's your advice on that? Yeah, great question. So I would say it's definitely better to get in the activity, get in the workout versus not having any, you know, exercise or activity during the day. And of course, that's going to depend on your, you know, um, overall fitness goals. Um, but if you are someone where you're doing a very strenuous workout pretty close to bed, like something like a HIIT workout, or you're going running before bed, that will definitely increase your overall core body temperature. And that can impact the quality of your sleep if you don't give yourself enough time to bring your body back down, because we do actually need to drop a couple degrees in our core body temp to be able to fall asleep. So, you know, my rule of thumb is it's better to get it, get in the workout, but you also want to give yourself a buffer zone. And so okay. that usually is at least two hours for most people, two to three hours, you know, three hours to be safe, but just to give yourself that window of opportunity where after the workout, you can allow your core body temperature to come down enough so that you can transition to sleep more easily. Aside from the, uh, body temperature, but it's also increasing your cortisol close to bedtime as well. Right. Great point. Great point. Yeah. So if you're doing a more higher intensity workout, okay. that can absolutely spike your cortisol. So that's also something that would need to kind of come back down in order to be able to transition to sleep. So, so yeah, that definitely can influence um, it just, you know, something to think about. I know that everybody has different schedules. So like you said, not one size fits all. So you have to do what's best for you. And if working out is something that alleviates stress, it, you obviously it's a big part of um, your lifestyle. And it's so, so important. And if you're working out in the evening and you don't have a, have trouble falling asleep, then that's great. But if you are, maybe that's something to consider, maybe get in a earlier um, workout. You mentioned, um, body temperature. I know there are some people that set their thermostat to a certain degree, like they lower it during the evening. Do you have recommendations on what we should, what um, our thermostat should be set at to get quality sleep? Another area where it really does depend on your preference. Mm. The general recommendation, which is from the National Sleep Foundation, is that our thermostat should be between 64 to 68. And some folks will, you know, hear that and they'll think, oh my gosh, that's way too cold. Or, you know, some folks like it even colder than that. So really it should be a temperature that, you know, maybe is three to four degrees cooler than what you would keep it at during the day. But you also don't want it to be too cold for your liking because that can disrupt sleep. So somewhere kind of in, in the middle there, but generally like mid sixties are the recommendation. Awesome. So do you have any, um, tips on, I've heard about weighted blankets. There are people that swear by having a weighted blanket. It's supposed to help, um, you sleep better. You feel more comfortable. I know when babies are little, it's recommended that they have something like that's a little bit tighter. It feels more like the womb. Do you have any insight on, on weighted blankets? 
Yeah, that's another really great question and something I've done a ton of research into um, because I get this question all the time from folks like, you know, is it worth investing in one? And just as you mentioned, you know, I think the, the concept of a weighted blanket is very much, you know, how we as newborns feel when we're swaddled and we have, you know, something tight that helps us feel like we're in the womb. So it's this sense of feeling comforted and feeling grounded. And so you know, I would say for folks who tend to be more hot sleepers, like they tend to wake up hot during the night, weighted blankets, not only of course have that, that weight to them, but they usually are made of materials that can trap heat. And so for those who, you know, really just go from like hot and cold frequently during the night, they probably aren't the best, but for those who, you know, really prefers that like feeling of groundedness, that feeling of weight, and also want that warmth during the night, then definitely is something to look into, especially if you find that it is uh, a relaxing way to just feel that comfort and to feel that relaxation. Ultimately, it's about comfort when we're sleeping and also temperature does have a lot to do with it. So if you you don't want it to be something that's going to wake you up either. And so it might take a little bit of experimenting and there are many different options out there these days, but generally, if you do look into them or consider them, I always recommend like fabrics that are more breathable, more hypoallergenic. Like there are many that are made with like bamboo fibers and plant fibers, and those tend to be a lot lighter and cooler, but still have that that weighted feeling or that the the benefits of the the weighted glass in them. So they can be really helpful for that reason, more of a comfort. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause I've, I've heard so many people talk about weighted blankets and how helpful they have been to their quality of sleep. Um, and if you're listening, there's tons on Amazon. I think you just have to do your research. I am not, I don't have a specific brand to recommend. Do you know any brands off the top of your head that are like, look into or worth looking into? I don't know any off the top of my head. Um, they could go to Amazon read reviews or yeah. Yeah. There are three other important questions that I think we really need to touch on and that I guess we can mesh these two together, but the, um, the effect that alcohol and caffeine has on the, our quality of, of sleep. Can you talk about that? Sure. Sure. So we'll talk about caffeine first. Um, caffeine And of course it comes in many different forms, coffee, tea, soda, energy drinks, some medications. Um, Caffeine is what we call an adenosine antagonist. So it actually blocks the receptors that are directly involved in the process of sleep. And so it isn't, and I know this might, um, this might maybe cause a, a few chuckles, but it isn't the, energy booster that most people think it is. You know, a lot of people are like, I can't function unless I have that that first sip of coffee right away. But what it does is it actually blocks your own sleep system from building up. And so you get this boost of energy or this boost of alertness because your sleep system is kind of halted for a certain period of time. And then once that kind of wears off and, you know, kind of metabolizes and gets to your system, a lot of people then may feel sluggish or kind of feel like they may need another cup because their sleep system, then you're able to feel it a little bit more. So 
caffeine, I would say most common coffee. Um, caffeine is something that actually hangs out in our system for a really long time. Of course, depends on how sensitive you are to caffeine, but generally caffeine has a half-life of six to eight hours. So that means six to eight hours after you finish drinking your cup of coffee or cups of coffee, mm-hmm. there's still half the amount of caffeine in your system. Interesting. Six to eight hours, you said? Six to eight hours later, yeah. So so let's say you know you stop your last drink maybe around lunchtime or after lunchtime, there's pro- there's still likely about half the amount of caffeine in your system when you're maybe winding down for bed or after dinner. So there's still some effects of, of that caffeine in your system. Interesting. So I heard somewhere before too, like you should have kind of like a hard cutoff. And I know for many people, like, especially like after lunch, if you're at the office, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm ready to crash. I need a damp. And you go for that, you know, second cup, third cup, whatever it is of, of coffee, but really you should consider cutting that off at an earlier time. If you're looking to get a more, um, better quality sleep, is that right? That's correct. And also, you know, again, it depends on how sensitive you are to caffeine because we've actually recently found that there's this kind of genetic predisposition to being able to tolerate the effects of caffeine a little bit better than others. So like some folks who can have it very close to bedtime and it doesn't impact their ability to fall asleep at all, for example, although those are probably the minority of people, I'd say most people do feel the effects of caffeine, especially, you know, earlier in the day. And it goes back to your unique circadian rhythm. So if you're someone who has, say, a typical sleep schedule of a 10 to 6 or 11 to 7 or something like that, then the rule of thumb is you really do want to try to cut it off as early as possible. So before Mm -hmm. lunchtime, before noon, for someone who maybe has a later sleep schedule, who's more of a night owl, you, you might be able to have your cup a little bit later in the day since you're going to bed much later. So it really does depend on your unique biology. Even though you might have an, uh, an easier time falling asleep, will it uh, still, or can it still affect the stages that you're in and the amount of, I guess, deep sleep you're getting? Yes. Yes, it sure can. Okay. Question. Yeah. So even if it is, you know, it's been processed and metabolized and kind of out of your system or the majority of the caffeine has been out of your system, what we do know now is that there still is, there still can be an effect on the quality of your sleep and specifically how long you might spend in each of the stages of sleep and Mm. specifically how long you might spend in the more restorative stages of sleep. So caffeine can actually keep you say in the lighter stages of sleep a little bit longer as an example. So you might still get all of the sleep stages, but you're not going to get as much time in those restorative stages, even with a small level of caffeine still in your system. Interesting. And I'm not trying to deter anybody from having their caffeine. I like my caffeine, like everybody else I need, I need my coffee, but, um, it's something to consider. And also if you have a teen, um, that are drinking energy drinks and they're not falling asleep, that's something, um, to consider as well. It's like, okay, that's why they're not falling asleep. It's probably still in their system. Now let's talk about alcohol because I've 
uh, if you're listening, I'm sure you've had a night where you've had a few too many cocktails, or maybe it was just one and you felt it, the quality of sleep the next day, you're feeling sluggish, you're feeling foggy, or, um, and maybe you can speak to this too. Like you wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden you have like insomnia and you can't go back, back to sleep. Can you talk about the effects of alcohol and our sleep patterns? Yeah, alcohol is a sleep disruptor. It's also the most commonly used sleep aid. I would yeah. say probably second to, to melatonin, but because it's so readily available, you know, a lot of people feel like alcohol is a great way to help them fall asleep. And what we do know from research on alcohol is that yes, it can actually help people fall asleep faster because it's essentially sedating you. Okay. So, you know, knocking you out, even if it is a glass or two, I mean, the effects of alcohol, depending on what type of alcohol you're drinking, that also can make a difference. You know, if it's beer or wine versus liquor, but essentially, or in a, I would say in a nutshell, you know, it's, it's sedating you to the point where you're able to fall asleep faster, but here's what happens. Like once you do fall asleep, the, when the alcohol is being metabolized through your body, it actually causes you to wake up and usually it causes a lot of wake ups. It's a lot of fragmentation as you know, the, the, the sugars and everything in alcohol are metabolized as well. So it's not only the, you know, the alcohol, but it's the sugar component as well that can, can cause those wake ups. And for some people, they will sleep through the night and feel like they slept great, but they still woke up. You just don't have memory of that happening because you're sedated and you just can't recall those wake ups, but they're happening. And just as you said, like sometimes it can cause nights of insomnia where you just wake up very abruptly and then you have trouble falling back asleep. And that usually is because there is a blood sugar spike, your cortisol spikes, your body's, you know, trying to focus on digestion and that impacts how you're able to get back to sleep. So it is really common for those who do, you know, notice effects of, of alcohol in their sleep. It's really common to be able to fall asleep, maybe a little bit faster, but then you notice that you wake up a lot during the night. And then because of that, you're feeling pretty crappy, you know, when you do wake up that final right. time and kind of out of it and groggy. And of course that's what leads to that hangover effect. So it's usually, you know, that hangover effect is often like we, you know, a lot of us will think, oh, it's because I drank last night, but it's often because you woke up a lot. Oh, okay. You woke up a lot. So you, you, you know, ended up being um, in a state of, of wakefulness for a prolonged period of time. So you didn't get as good of quality of sleep or enough sleep. And that's also why you feel hungover. Interesting. Can you, there's two main uh, things I still want to touch on before I added one to the list here. You you mentioned melatonin. What is your opinion on uh, consumption of melatonin to uh, fall asleep? Melatonin is not the sleeping pill that people mm. think it is. And here in the US, you can get it anywhere. I know because I see it everywhere. And you know, what's interesting about melatonin is just like many other supplements, the melatonin products here in the US are not regulated. Mm, yeah. They're not regulated. You really don't know what you're getting in terms of quality and purity. And there it, actually in the last couple of years, there's a lot been a lot of research done with melatonin. Many of the products that are available here in the US have so many additives and fillers and are not actually melatonin in some cases. They're just like a lot of things that may be helpful for sleep or 
you know, there's this perceived help for sleep, like lavender and chamomile and valerian root and things that they can be, but they're, you know, marketed in, in this way that they're a melatonin product, but really they're oftentimes not. Um, so with melatonin, I would say generally it is not recommended for folks who have problems falling asleep or staying asleep for those who have sleep disorders like insomnia. And I typically don't recommend it. I okay. usually tell folks like, stop wasting your money. It's not doing anything for you. There are certain instances where I might recommend it. And that would be in the case of say someone who's traveling across multiple time zones on a regular basis, because it can help with jet lag and some other circadian rhythm issues. But for most people who are taking it, which is usually like right before bed to help to fall asleep, usually not going to be helpful. There really isn't a therapeutic benefit to taking melatonin. And one of the main reasons for that is because melatonin does not produce sleep for us. It helps with the timing of our sleep system. Okay. Yeah. So the way in which people are taking it is not going to be helpful to fall asleep per se. And there are of course some people who swear by it. And to that, I say, there's plenty of research that shows there is, there can be a placebo effect, which is an effect. So in that case, I'm like, look, if you feel like it's helping, take it. It's probably not the worst thing to be taking, okay. but it's also probably not doing much either if you're taking it as a sleep aid at bedtime. So in only very specific instances, would I recommend it? And also the dosage, I would not recommend anything more than one milligram. So I know that that's also something where when you see it, it's usually three, five, 10 right. people are taking you know, excess of that. That's way too much melatonin. It's flooding your system with all of this, you know, excess synthetic melatonin and all these other fillers that your liver is probably just filtering out. You don't actually need that much. And in fact, what we need our brain produces and creates for us in very, very small picograms. And so small, in fact, you know, when you take milligrams, you're just flooding what your body is already producing. And so it just, it kind of really throws everything out of whack. So, you know, for folks who are taking like 10 milligrams or even 20 milligrams, I tell them like, it's like kind of overdosing on melatonin. Okay. And yeah, you know, so, so it really is something that I wish, um, you know, another thing, I, I think people are talking more about it, but I wish we would be talking more about how it isn't really as beneficial as most people think it is as a traditional sleep aid. Okay. What about CBD? So CBD is also something I would say not much, much research on it from a sleep perspective, but what we do know is that it can be very similar to the effects of alcohol. Okay. So it can help folks fall asleep faster or fall asleep more easily, but as it gets metabolized, it can lead to more wake ups during the night. So it ends up fragmenting sleep and ultimately, you know, not giving you the best quality sleep, but then there are some folks who take it and, you know, they serve another thing that they serve by and they love it. And, you know, to that, I will say, there's plenty of research now on CBD oil and taking it for stress relief or anxiety relief or for pain issues. And so sometimes taking that and it bringing down your stress level or your anxiety levels, so you're more relaxed and you're more comfortable, that allows you to 
you know, fall asleep more easily. So it may not be directly affecting sleep, but it may be affecting some of the other areas of your life that are impacting sleep. Mm. And I think it's safe to say that CBD is not regulated, FDA regulated, right? And there could be fillers in there like in melatonin or any over counter prescription, I guess over the counter, I don't know if that would be a prescription, but any other types of drugs you can get at Walgreens, CVS, or your, you know, local mom and pop shop. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say like, whenever you're trying out a supplement like CBD oil or melatonin, you really want to make sure that you're looking for brands that have gone through extensive third-party testing and not just say that they have, but actually like tell you what third parties have really looked at what's on the label and looked at the ingredients so that, you know, you're getting a more pure form of these products. And there are actually some, some really great companies out there now because you know, I think people are catching on to this, that a lot of the supplements, you know, previously just had so much stuff in them that, you know, really weren't taking what was marketed or what was put on the label. There is a website I've mentioned it on the show before. It's called lab door, L a B door D O O R.com. Um, you can go to that. I've used that website so many different times, but I believe you can look up, um, CBD and melatonin. A lot of supplements are on there. The last question I want to leave you with, because I know there are some listeners that are like, well, I suffer from insomnia. What advice do you have for them that maybe they have been using melatonin or they have been, you know, taking CBD, where do you recommend, or what do you recommend they start with in order to get better quality sleep? Fantastic question. And I would say when it comes to insomnia, there are two types, two main types, there's short-term insomnia and there's chronic insomnia. So insomnia in general is either having difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, or waking up to earlier a combination of those two or three issues. And short-term is defined as having those symptoms, but three months or less. Chronic would be having those symptoms for three or more months. So when, you know, what's interesting is when it comes to short-term insomnia, having sleep disruption and having those symptoms is actually a normal response to stress. So you might find that at times where just things are really crazy or something does happen in your life. Like for example, if you have um, a death in the family or you lose your job or something like that, that's, you know, of course, really devastating in the moment, you may notice that your sleep becomes disrupted, but as you start to heal or as you, you know, kind of move on, the sleep resolves on its own. So oftentimes with short-term or often it can be also referred to as adjustment insomnia, it can resolve on its own just with time and kind of overcoming that stressful, that stressful um, timeframe when it becomes chronic. So when you've been dealing with those symptoms for three or more months, and now it's really starting to impact your day, it's impacting your ability to get through your day. It's impacting your mood and your relationships and work and all of these other areas, that's when I would suggest actually seeking out a sleep specialist. Mm -hmm. And I say that because, you know, a lot of doctors, believe it or not, don't get any training in sleep 
they don't have any training in sleep disorders during medical school. And I think the average is maybe one or two hours of sleep. Why does that not surprise me? The same goes with nutrition and exercise. (laughs) So, so, you know, I think if you're going to your doctor for a lot of people, their doctors are not specifically asking them about how they're sleeping. So it's something where I would say first, like bring up the conversation if you are struggling, because chances are your doctor is probably not going to ask you about it. It's just not something that they're trained to think about. And even if they do ask you about it, if they're not a sleep specialist, they oftentimes don't really know how to help in the way that a, a trained sleep specialist would. So, you know, even a lot of general practitioners will just say, oh, take melatonin or try this, you know, this medication, you know, hoping that that will help, but really those aren't the most effective ways to be able to address the underlying reason. So I'd say step one would be to bring up the conversation with your doctor if you really are struggling. And if you really do want specialized support, and I would say a, a individualized plan to tackle the, the symptoms that you're experiencing that I would definitely encourage you to seek out a, a sleep medicine specialist. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. You r- provided so much knowledge, so many tips. Where can listeners find you on social media? Do you have a website? Give us all of the details. Yes, yes, I do have a website. It is drsarasleep.com. And right now you can find me on most social platforms, although I'm the most active on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Sarah Sleep. Awesome. And we'll leave all of that information in the show notes. You guys, I hope you take some time to evaluate the sleep you're getting the number of hours the quality of sleep hopefully you have learned something from this episode and it would mean so much to us if you shared it with somebody who maybe suffers from not getting enough sleep uh share it to your social media tag sarah dr sarah sleep and myself at lauren period kubat and instagram we would love you forever remember you got this Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you love this episode, make sure you are subscribed so you know when more episodes come available. My goal is to inspire others to become their vision and one way to get the word out is with reviews. I would really appreciate it if you left an honest review on iTunes and it would mean so much to me. Thanks again and remember to go after the life you want. Bye guys. Bye guys.